Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Last week when I was a boy, uh, one of my goals in life was to fly what was at the time the fastest plane in the world. That's the Lockheed Skunk Works SR-71 spy plane, also known as the Blackbird. It was powered by two Pratt & Whitney J-58 afterburning turbojets that could propel this thing to a speed of about 2,200 miles an hour at an altitude of 80,000 feet. Why did I want to fly that plane? Because it was awesome. Awesome. What boy wouldn't want to be the fastest kid on the planet? But what I told my mom who was always talking to us about doing something for God with your life. What I told her was, if I can fly that plane, well, people are going to respect me. People are going to want to listen to me. And when I tell them about Jesus, well, they'll believe me. <laughs> now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. My plan was that my prosperity at doing what I wanted to do would inspire awe and envy in others so that they might in turn do what God wants them to do and trust him. Now, you've probably run across a formula, something like this before. God, let's make a deal. <laughs> let's make a deal. Help me accomplish my purposes, and I will help you accomplish your purposes. You know, it's not so naive or, or so on the nose as to say, God, God, okay, you know, you scratch my back, and I'll scratch your back. Not quite exactly that, but more along the lines of my purposes and God's purposes, they're going the same direction. If life was a railroad track, well, then this would be the assumption that what God wants to do and what I want to do, they're parallel rails on that same track going toward the same station. What do I want to be when I grow up? Oh, well, that's my decision, right? My prerogative, my dreams, my desires, my hopes, my aspirations, all of them are mine. <laughs> this, after all, is my life. What do I want to do with my life? Well, I can be whatever it is that I want to be. And if what, if I, if what I want to do is fly that blackbird, well, then I should be able to fly that blackbird. And the same is true for you, isn't it? I mean, if you want to be successful and independently wealthy, well, then go out and do it. If you want to get married and, and raise a family, by all means, do that. You know, if you want to stay single for a while, and you want to travel the world, you want to have one adventure after another, go right out and do it. Because that's good, right? That, that, that's right. That's part of this whole life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness thing. Isn't this kind of an American thing? It's kind of an American dream. And you know, it's easy to think that way as Christians, too. God gave me this life. He gave me my aspirations and my dreams. So obviously, when I go out and I seek to live my best life now, well, then God is not only happy with that, but he's going to bless that. He's going to make it happen. Because his plans, 
and my plans, well, they just go hand in hand, don't they? And we can think this way when it comes to our church as well. If God wants his kingdom to move on forward and for more and more people to come to know Jesus, that sounds like a good thing. And if we're called to be a part of that and, and, and he's on our side, well, then he's going to protect us from harm, is he not? And he's going to give us all the money and all the resources that we need. And he's going to cause our church and everything that we do in life, everything that we touch, to turn to gold. Oh, yes. And we should be flying higher. We should be flying faster in more blackbird-like style so that everyone looks at us and goes, wow, I want to be a Christian. I want to get on God's side. There's nothing wrong with this kind of thinking, is there? We might think that way until we actually open our Bibles and look at what Jesus calls us to. We need to brace ourselves this morning. As we take a look at Paul's experience in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, we're going to see once again that God's ways are so not our ways. <laughs> and we're going to see that his purposes are so not our purposes. And we'll discover that once again, that getting on board with God's program, well, it requires loosening our grip on our own. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 19. We'll get into it in just a moment. You might remember, if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, that Paul and his team, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, that's, that's at least of what we know, the guys who were with him, they were in the Macedonian city of Philippi. And Philippi, it was a Roman colony, and so it was subject to Roman law, and that meant only state-sanctioned deities and religions were to be worshipped within the confines of that city. And that's one of the reasons that Paul goes outside of the city to find people who are going to pray to the God of Israel. As we noted last time, that's where he found this woman named Lydia. And he shares Jesus with her. And we saw in the book of Acts that God opens her heart to the truth of Jesus, and she becomes the first convert in Philippi, followed shortly after by her entire household. And then we saw how God's power was displayed once again as Paul casts a spirit out of a young slave girl who was known to have this ability to tell fortunes. We reminded ourselves that God's power, it knows no bounds, even in a dark, uncomfortable places of the world. All signs are pointing to the reality that God is doing something very big here. They are on the, they are on the edge. They are on the outskirts. They are out there, far from home, and God's doing something big here. Traction was being made. And we might imagine Paul and his team just kind of like exchanging high fives, saying things like, I love it when a plan comes together. I love it. Have you ever felt that way? Like, like you're at that, finally, at that breakthrough moment that you've been waiting for, finally arrived, and now you can really expect to see 
some progress. Look at verse 19. But when her owners, that is the slave girl's owners, saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, Luke does, doesn't give us a lot of details here, but I'm assuming that when that spirit came out of that slave girl, her abilities to, to tell fortunes just, just disappeared. I think we, we can also probably, it's probably safe to assume that this young girl even came to faith in Jesus Christ and became a follower of Jesus as well in that moment. So you have Lydia and her household, and you have this girl, and they are now presumably the founding members of the first church in Philippi. This is pretty exciting. But what all of this also meant was that the income generated by this girl's special talents, it, it dries up, it disappears. And this is where their true colors, the colors of her masters, is revealed. Whether or not they had put on appearances that we really love this girl and we're really caring for this girl and we're really bringing good to this girl's life, all of a sudden it became very, very clear that they didn't care about her at all. She's in her right mind, perhaps for the first time, healthier, happier, finally free, and yet all they care about is the money that they would no longer be making. Wow, this is, this is dark, isn't it? This is disgusting. People using other people. I think there was a movie that came out about that just this past week. Yet it's not uncommon in our world, is it? Not uncommon at all. When it comes to light that people, sometimes it's giant corporations, sometimes it's politicians, sometimes it's even hospitals, and they're pushing a soul-corrupting, life-destroying agenda, all in the name of love, or all in the name of health, or all in the name of whatever. They're pushing it, but it comes to light that what they're really after is money, and what they're really after is power. That's when we get a little picture of what evil looks like. And we see it when governments encourage drug use, when policies are pushed to eliminate unborn lives, when young people are, are fast-tracked to receive irreversible procedures that are devastating, when algorithms on apps or social media platforms, they're set to hook people on sexually explicit or suicidal topics or divisive content. They say it's about love. Oh, yeah, they do. They say it's about freedom. They say it's about celebrating diversity or autonomy or individuality. But you peel back the layers and what you quickly begin to find is that it is about power and it is about money and it is about control at the expense of human lives. That's going on here in Acts chapter 16. Now in the battle of good and evil and light and darkness, we might assume that the type of thing that, that is happening here to Paul and Silas, that 
absolutely should not happen. If God is God and he rules over all things, then of course, even though these slain slave owners, they're, they're hot, they're, they're bothered, but they shouldn't be able to do anything to harm Paul and Silas, right? No way. These are God's men. God's program is unfolding here. It's obvious, right? And in the same way, you would think that a church, hopefully like, like our church, one that is trying to be faithful to what God has revealed in his word, you would hope that God would shield a church like that, that he would prevent a church like that from experiencing the, 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 the opposition that is out there and, the, and the, the reality of the threats that are out there. If you decided to trust in Jesus, boy, I thought this growing up, if, if I decided to trust in Jesus, gave him my life, isn't it reasonable for me to expect that God is going to cause things in my life to go well? But obviously that's not always the case. What does that say about God? Is he not powerful enough to protect his people? Does he not really care about his people? Is he running some type of scam here where he's leading people to trust him and then hanging them out to dry? Or could it be, could it be that what he wants to accomplish and how he wants to accomplish it is very, very different from how I think he should accomplish it? Paul and Silas, they were about to experience a terrible injustice. Verse 20 says this, when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Of course, we know that this really wasn't about Paul and Silas causing trouble at all. This was all about the money that these men were no longer going to be receiving. Verse 22 says, the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. What happened to law and order here? What happened to, to Roman justice, which was supposed to be a, a real thing? What happened to a fair trial? We don't see it there. We're not unfamiliar with that kind of stuff in our world, are we? And we've seen this kind of stuff happen in recent years in our world, have we not? In our country, we've seen how easy it is for outrage to turn people against one another. We've even seen that in the church. We've seen how easy it is for people to be moved to make violent threats or to be inclined to try to skirt around what they know is right and good or even around the justice system to satisfy whatever it is their desires are. And we ask, God, why don't you stop this? <laughs> you can't possibly allow your people to be treated this way, right? It can't be. And verse 23 says, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, that's not for their safety. That's not for Paul and Silas' safety. It's, it's to make sure they stay there. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. This is unbelievable. 
<laughs> Here they are. Merely bringing the good news of Jesus to another city. Now they're being treated like public enemy number one. Now they're arrested without a trial. Now they're being put under maximum security as the worst of the worst, the most dangerous of the dangerous. Now, if this were me and I were there, let me tell you, I would be experiencing some type of a crisis moment. I, I would have been panicking. I, I, I'd be discouraged. I'd be depressed. I'd be having all kinds of questions. The first of which would be, God, why? Have you ever said that? God, why? I don't understand. I, I, I don't even know how to make sense of anything. I'd just say, God, why? I don't get it. This would be devastating. This would be world collapsing. This is not the way things are supposed to go. I thought we were doing what God wanted to do. In fact, wasn't it God who opened Lydia's heart? Clearly, God was doing something. We're doing God's work. Wasn't it God, by his power, that the spirit was cast out of that slave girl? God's using us. We're doing his work here. So why? What gives? And that's where we see and we're faced with the reality that God's ways are not our ways. We might think that he cares simply about numbers, bringing more and more people into his church. We might think that he's just interested in building more and more and more churches out there and supplying them with all the financial resources and the prosperity that they could ever want. But you know what? He's after more than that, isn't he? He wants more than that. We're given clues in his word. He wants to build character in his people. He wants to build up their faith, perseverance. He wants to develop in his people. God wants to allow situations that we are put in to put his power on display or his justice on display or his goodness on display in stark contrast to the evil and the garbage that's stinking up and laying waste to our world. James 1-2 says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters as well. When you meet trials of various kinds, you know that the, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Clearly, God wants to do something with the trials, the, the, the hard things that you and I experience in life. I was recently asked by a friend if I agreed that God wanted him to become the best, the absolute best doctor he could possibly be. So he could show the world what it's like to be a Christian. To, to, to show them, see, I'm very sincere about my Christian faith, and, and, and this is what my, what my life looks like. My career looks like it's just flourishing. It's just blossoming. This is incredible. Of course, we certainly do all things to the glory of God. That's what we're supposed to do anyways, and that means giving it, giving it our all. Not being satisfied with mediocrity here. No, this is for God. So I'm gonna, if I'm going to be a doctor for God, well, I'm going to be the very best doctor I could possibly. I'm going to study hard. I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to work hard at this. It might, be, might require some sacrifice on my part, but just for the glory of God. So I'm going to be the very best I can be. But as we were talking together, we started thinking through and, and asking ourselves, isn't it possible? Isn't it also possible? 
that even in our failures and even in our, our moments of weakness or suffering, that God wants to reveal something to a watching world as well. Isn't it possible that God allows the paths that you and I walk to give us some bumps and some bruises for a reason? Could it be that he's actually accomplishing something even greater than we had planned by allowing us to go through some difficulty rather than just live on prosperity and easy street? Flashback to Jesus and his disciples. And as they were walking along, they walked by a blind man. And John 9, 2 says, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is really curious. We'd like to know. See, in their minds, it was unthinkable that there be any other explanation. Someone did something very, very wrong for this man to be born blind because obviously you wouldn't want this to happen to anyone who is honoring you with their life. This man's blindness, it must mean that he or someone else is being punished by God for something. And that's the same line of thinking that prosperity gospel advocates hold on to. They preach this idea that if you have enough faith, and, and, and you, you give enough money, especially to our organization, our ministry, or, or you just obeyed perfectly enough, then you would be under God's quote-unquote umbrella of protection. And he's just going to bless your socks off. This is the formula. It's how it works. But could it be that there are some unfortunate situations we find ourselves in that exist for a different purpose, a better purpose. Jesus answers his disciples and he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he goes on and heals him. Had Paul and Silas somehow sinned here? We certainly don't know. We know they weren't perfect men. Certainly their lives had sin just like your, our lives have sin. But was the brutal treatment they were now receiving, some indicated that they made some huge mistake or some big miscalculation or worse, that God's plans had, had failed. God's plans had, had fallen apart. They'd gone terribly, terribly wrong. Or could it be that in that dark, disgusting prison, as their arms and their, their legs and their backs began crying out in pain because of the stalks which held them, could it be that God was accomplishing something? This is so important. So important for us to grab hold of this morning. And this is where we see that historic Christian theology is sometimes far more robust than our own we might nod our heads and say, yes, being a Christian, it, it, it's about taking up our cross and following Jesus. Yeah, we can say that. We might acknowledge that to be Jesus' disciple, well, it means we got to let go of our lives. And uh, we'd say it's no secret that Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? We get it. Jesus said it. I'm on board with it. <laughs> but there are times when it is the case for me, and perhaps it's the case for you, that we're confronted with some type of difficult situation, and the way that we respond says we don't get it. We just don't get it. There are times when I find myself hurting. I, I find myself in need, or the, the victim of this or that, or sometimes, especially now in the position that I'm in here, just disrespected. They're not respecting me. <laughs> and I can't seem to understand why my prosperity or success is not running parallel with God's plans. You, you mean... God doesn't always want me to, to fly high and fast and in super cool jet black style? You mean that part of God's good plan for me could actually not include me getting everything that I want? Is it possible that when Jesus said that, that I have to lose my life, that it might mean I actually do need to lose it for his sake? Why is it so difficult for you and me to understand sometimes? Paul and Silas didn't seem to have any trouble understanding that. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. <laughs> and the prisoners were listening to them. Here they are in the pit. The place that reeked of despair. They're not despairing, are they? They're not complaining. They're not even asking, God, why? No, they're singing. They're praising God loudly, so loudly that everyone else down there can hear them. Are they insane? Have they completely lost it? As a matter of fact, they had. They had lost it. They had let go of this idea that their circumstances gave any indication that God, their king, was not still on his throne. Still completely in control. Still fully aware of what was going on, what was going down. And that even in that moment, he was accomplishing a purpose far greater than anything that they had even imagined. Maybe you'll remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.20. He says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. They knew that God was doing that, even as they were chained in that filthy prison. Friends, we can't make too much of this. This, this is incredible stuff. Paul would later write to this church, to the Philippian church, rejoice in the Lord always. There's a typo here. It says, again, I will say, rejoice. This is a command. This is what we have to do. This is, this is in light of everything that we know of who God is and what he is doing here on earth, even in the midst of the things that don't make sense to us, rejoice. And they were doing that right there. Their circumstances were irrelevant. There's no doubt in my mind that winding up in prison was not part of their plan. <laughs> this was not part of their Macedonian church planting strategy. No way. 
But whatever plans they had, they held loosely, didn't they? Knowing that the plans that God was unfolding had to be better. They have to be better. Paul would go on to write in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that doesn't mean that, that all things that come our way, we will perceive to be good, right? It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't say that. It says that God will work them. He does work them together for good. And that means that there is some good purpose that we may or may not be aware of that he's bringing about through every circumstance. Because it says all things are worked together for good. Now, another thing to notice here, this is important. We, we shouldn't miss this. The good, it's only good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things don't work together for everyone's good. In fact, for those who continue to reject Jesus, the gift that God gave to the world for salvation, that everyone who trusts in him might be forgiven and be reunited and granted hope rather than despair, treasure instead of judgment. For those who reject that, there is no good coming. It's just judgment. You know, Rob Bell, he gets it so, so wrong. The love of God does not mean that every human soul will be saved. Jesus is clear on that. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's why this message is so precious. That's why this message is, the, 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 the push to get the message out is so urgent. There's a lot at stake here. The believing in, the trusting in Jesus and surrendering your life to him makes all the difference. Have you acknowledged your need for a savior and placed your trust in Jesus? If you haven't done that, you need to do that. Let's talk right after the service. For those who have trusted in Jesus, are you still trusting? Are you still trusting even when it feels like everything is falling apart? Even the very, very worst of circumstances, the biggest break from your plans that God is working to bring about his better purposes. That is difficult to come to grips with sometimes, especially when we're experiencing heartbreak. In the middle of the night, Paul and Silas, they're singing their lungs out in the most unlikely of places, and that's when God's purposes begin to come into focus. Look at verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Do prison shackles tend to fall off when you just kind of rattle them? <laughs> no, they don't. And that seems to indicate that something even bigger than an earthquake is going on here. Verse 27, when the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword 
and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Obviously, he's thinking that the more honorable thing for him to do is just take his own life before he goes to, uh, before the, the, the authorities and his family is put to shame, and then they do it for him. So I'll just do it right now. But you know, when we think about it, when, as I'm reading this, who cares about the jailer? Why, why, should I, why should I care about, in fact, Luke, why do you even put anything about, about the jailer? In here, isn't he one of the bad guys? The jailer's a Roman. He's, he's acting out the despicable plans of the enemy here. This guy, I, I, I couldn't care less. All we care about are the good guys, Paul and Silas. This is their story, isn't it? And how often do we look at our lives the exact same way? Exact same way. This is our story. This is my story. You're all part of it. This is my story. Let me sit down with you and tell you my story. I can tell you about my dreams when I was little. And I can tell you about how God changed those dreams. And then I had other dreams. God changed those. And eventually, through a series of circumstances, he led me here. Now I'm here with you, and I'm doing something here. And and this is my, where's God going to take me next? Oh, yeah, this is all about Jared. We tend to think, this is all about us. It's all about our lives. And the only suffering, and the only injustice, and the only inconvenience, and discomfort, or, or care we should have about hopes and dreams, that's our own that we should care about. What God is doing for us is what matters, right? Might be nice to hear good things for other people every once in a while, but what we really care about is our good. And that's why when our plans get turned upside down or our day goes south, we have such a hard time dealing with it. Friends, Could it be that in the difficult moments of your life and my life, that God is at work bringing about some greater good for someone else? Could it be that his purposes are greater than what we think is our good at that moment? Yeah, yeah, we know from James 1 that God uses suffering to build character in us, so okay, he's probably doing that right now. Maybe there's something bigger, though. Could it be that when hard times strike, that God is giving us an opportunity to be witnesses to the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ to someone else? Just just hypothetically speaking for a moment here, what if $100,000 was stolen from us? So that we could put on display the change that God's spirit has been making inside of our hearts, loosening our grips on the treasures of this world while causing us to grip all the more tightly to the treasures he promised us in heaven. Amen? (laughs) What if all the while he wanted to show someone else who did not trust in him that he is trustworthy What if there's someone out there who would not otherwise be brought in to the kingdom of our king were it not for this event to have happened? And what if that person is one of those thieves? Verse 28. The jailer is about to end it all. Paul cries out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. 
And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Speechless. Verse 32, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. (laughs) I remember hearing this as a kid in Sunday school. You just go, what? This may come as a shock to you. I never did fly the SR-71 other than the little model rocket that my dad and I built together and it exploded at some point. At some point early on, I came to loosen my grip on that dream. And that's the reality for so many of us. In fact, there are some children's stories that talk about how they mourn the loss of adulthood and how you let go of the the dreams that you had when you were a child. But sooner or later, we all let go of these different dreams that we have. And you've let go of probably many. But I suspect that you and I have others, other things that we're holding on to. We don't even realize we're holding on to them. And God's saying, let me take that pinky finger. Let me loosen your grip. That's part of what Christ has called us to, is it not? That we loosen our grip on our lives for the sake of gaining them. Lydia certainly began to do that. Almost immediately after her heart was opened to Jesus, she, she opens up her house to these strangers, and she insists, you got to come. you got to come to my house. I am your hostess. I don't know about you, but that's a hard thing for me to do. I like my privacy. My home is my sanctuary. This is where I escape from everything, where I get away from people. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard for me to loosen my grip on that. The jailers seem to get this too. One moment, he's taking his own life. Like we already said, he's probably trying to avoid the shame of it all, trying to make sure he maintains some control over his life and and doesn't let his authorities take it from him. The next moment, he's putting his career and his reputation at extreme risk as he starts washing these prisoners up. As he, he listens to what they have to say, he's baptized by them. Now he's inviting them into his home. His family's listening to the truth. What a drastic transformation. What's not mentioned here, but what we find in 2 Corinthians is the change in the Philippian church. We see in Acts 16, it's just the very beginning of this church. It consisted of Lydia and her household, the, 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 probably the slave girl who was freed from the demon. Now it's this jailer who we don't even know his name in, in, in his household. That's the church. And we, we mentioned when we started talking about Macedonia and, and Philippi that Philippi was a wealthy place. We might assume that the church in Philippi was very well-to-do also, but that was not the case. Paul reveals in 2 Corinthians 8, things were not easy for these churches. He writes about them. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You know what that is? That's this. We let it go. We let it go. See what's happening? These churches, they're, they're, they're not experiencing success as the way that we so often measure success these days. They're not busting up the seams. They're not putting up big and impressive buildings. They're not diving into a money pit of, of gold coins like Scrooge McDuck and the cartoons that I used to watch. On the contrary, they are in extreme poverty and affliction. They should be sending out distress signals. They should be posting on their social media, send help quickly. We need it. But here they're, they're losing it. They're gladly, eagerly giving of the little that they have. Paul continues to write, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. They're just, they're just giving. They're eager. They just want to give it away for the good of other churches. It says, uh, begging us earnestly for the favor and taking part in the relief of the saints. They, their love for fellow believers is so strong that, that they don't even, it's, they don't care what happens to them. Take care of those other people. And Paul writes, and this, not as we expected, but they gave them themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. They're losing it, weren't they? They're losing it. Loosen their grips on the things of this world to invest in things that are truly valuable. Friends, God's plans, they are bigger and better than our own. We say it here a lot at Bethany, and it's so true, and I need to hear it once more this morning. The lives that he calls us to are so much greater, have so much greater value and purpose than the lives and the, 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 that we have formulated in our minds and the way things are going to roll out on our timeline. The plans that we make, we might think they're good, they pale in comparison to the ones God has for us. So let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's lose our lives that we might find them in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And let's be watching, especially in those difficult moments, let's be watching for the unexpected good that God is bringing about and lift our voices in joyful praise so that others might hear. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, for the work that you did in people's lives, people like Lydia people like this jailer, people like Paul and Silas, Lord, that we get to look back on the example of what you have accomplished, things that do not make sense from a human perspective, but from a divine perspective, Lord, this is incredible. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that your ways are not our ways, that your plans are bigger and better than our own. Lord, help us to trust you with all our heart, and lean not on our understanding, but to in all 
our ways acknowledge you and trust that you will make those paths of ours straight and have sense to them. And in the end, proven to bring about your good purposes. We love you. We thank you. And pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.